All right, now for the scripture reading for today. It comes from John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. Let's give our full attention. This is the reading of God's precious word for us this morning. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the reading of God's word. Now let's give our full attention to the preaching of this word. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. I am happy to share God's word with us this morning. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we ask for your mercy this morning. We pray that you would increase our faith as we hear your word at this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so grateful that the story of Thomas is in Scripture I'm so grateful that the Bible records his doubt because I believe many believers who even grew up in the church face some doubts at some point in their life. And the thing about doubts is we tend to keep them pretty private. We internalize them. And so I'm so thankful for Thomas that he says in public what many of us feel or we're thinking in just in our minds or in private. Thomas says out loud, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, I will never believe. Anyone who has ever doubted, what they're looking for is some kind of evidence or some kind of proof. And it is actually, based on Barnard Research in 2017, the majority experience of believers, many doubt, and those who are of the millennial generation and even younger are twice as likely to doubt as well. And that's many of us here this morning. And so if you've experienced doubt or maybe you're experiencing some kind of doubt right now or you're a skeptic, glad that you're here, I think we can not only be comforted by Thomas's experience, comforted by Jesus's response to Thomas, but I think we can learn how to, in a healthy way, in a biblical way, wrestle with our doubts, not just individually, but as a church. We're going to look at two things this morning. The first is what it means to doubt, and then second, what to do with our doubt. So first, what does it mean to doubt? Having doubts doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Let's just get that out of the way. So if you have doubts, I mean, this week is Passion Week, also known as Holy Week. We believe Jesus was crucified this Friday, which is Good Friday. And then next Sunday, we're going to celebrate Easter. And we believe Jesus rose bodily from the grave. We believe that at some point he was fully dead. And then his heart started to beat. He started to breathe. Blood was flowing through his veins. He got up fully healed. 
in his glorious resurrected body and walked out of that tomb. And if you have some doubts about that, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Real Christians can have real doubts and still be real Christians and still be saved. It is a normative experience. In Mark chapter 9, the father of a boy who was tormented by demons, he cries out to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, yes, you can be a believer and have unbeliefs. Having unbeliefs doesn't mean you're not saved or you're not truly a Christian. That word for unbelief, it means weakness in faith. Not absence of faith, but weakness in faith. And so doubt is faith that wants to believe, but wavers to believe. That's doubt. We see another example of this when Peter is walking on the water He steps out in faith, but then he starts to sink. And then Jesus says, why do you doubt? Why do you have little faith? Jesus didn't say you didn't have any faith at all. Peter had faith enough that he actually took a few steps out on the water. That's amazing in itself. But then when he saw the storm, the winds, the waves, his faith shrunk to where it was a little faith and he started to sink. But it was still faith. He still had faith. And that's what it feels like when we're doubting. It feels like we're, we're sinking. It's this strange feeling of your faith is like slipping right through your fingers. It's, it's when one plus one no longer equals two, spiritually speaking. And you're scratching your head and you're saying things don't add up. Like Peter, maybe you look at your own life experiences and situations Maybe your, your own health is deteriorating, you're, you've lost loved ones, you're going through a really hard time in your life, there's relational fallout, financial hardship, and one plus one no longer equals two and you're starting to doubt. Many Christians doubt. But doubt, it's not a rejection of faith. It doesn't mean you have rejected the gospel and rejected God altogether. But what it is, it's a hesitation in faith. Doubt elsewhere in the Bible is described as a hesitation or a lack of confidence. And there are times, as Christians, we're going to lack confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and what the Bible is teaching. Converted people can lack confidence. That is possible. I've lacked confidence in what the Bible teaches at times in my life as well. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it talks about assurance of salvation and how confident one can be that they are saved. This is old English, but let me read it for us here. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. And it goes on and says, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers, in other words, in a variety of ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted. What's important here, it says that assurance, your confidence in your faith, is not part of the essence of faith. We should pursue assurance of our salvation. We should pursue confidence in our faith. But it's not necessary 
in itself to be saved. Because, as it says here, true believers can have their confidence shaken and intermitted at times. Even Thomas's faith was shaken and diminished. It's unfortunate that Thomas is notorious for John chapter 20. He's known for being doubting Thomas. But did you know back in John chapter 11, he was actually the most courageous and confident of all of the disciples? In John 11, Jesus wanted to go back to Judea because his good friend Lazarus passed away. All of the other disciples were saying, don't go, you're going to die, they're going to kill you. It was Thomas who said, let's go and we'll die with Jesus. Thomas was once the boldest and had the most confidence actually at that time. But his faith was shaken and diminished. Why? Understandably so. Jesus was just flogged and crucified. It rocked his world. So I, need, I, I think we need to give Thomas a little grace here. And I think you need to give yourself a little grace if you're doubting at times. And we definitely need to give each other grace for those who are doubting around us. Those who were once the boldest and most confident in faith, can, they can find themselves having a crisis in faith. Tim Keller, he said, and he's speaking to believers in the church. He says, everyone thinks they believe in the resurrection until they're told they only have a few months to live. Tim Keller himself, who for decades preached on and defended the historicity of the resurrection, and scripture found himself struggling to believe in the reality of the resurrection when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he shares about how he doubted it. And it was hard to believe when he was facing death and his health was deteriorating. Is it real? Did it really happen? Tim Keller's faith was diminished and weakened. And that can happen to the best of us. Doubt. Tim Keller, you know, he, he knew all the historical, rational, and intellectual reasons why to believe in the resurrection. But doubt, it, it's just not exclusively an intellectual issue. It's not just an information lapse. It's often more emotional and personal. And so those who are doubting, they don't just need another book to read. They don't just need more facts. Those are helpful, and I believe every believer should learn that. But they need more than that. I used to give Thomas a hard time because, like I shared, he was there when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead raise Lazarus from the dead, and I'm thinking, Thomas, you saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, in your framework now, you know that dead people can come back to life. And so when the disciples said that they saw the risen Jesus, why was it so hard for you to believe that? And it's because it's not just an intellectual or experiential issue. It's deeply personal Thomas 
wasn't there when Lazarus died. Nor did Lazarus die the horrific kind of death that Jesus died. And Lazarus was not as close to Thomas as Jesus was to Thomas. Thomas lost his teacher, his rabbi. He was following Jesus for three years, committed his life to him. And he was crucified. And he had not seen him. And he was afraid. I think a lot of our doubts can be based on fear. And there was that uncertainty, those three days. He was probably reviewing the past few years in his entire life. Like, what am I doing? What does life mean? What's going to happen tomorrow? A lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. It's understandable why Thomas doubted. And by the way, did you know all of the disciples doubted? So we got to stop saying that it was only Thomas who doubted. They all doubted. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, when Thomas was not there eight days prior, they all doubted. In Luke chapter 24, let me read this. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? The other ten doubted all the way up to the point until when Jesus revealed himself to them. And they touched Jesus and he ate in front of them. And then they believed. It sounds a lot like Thomas. And that's what Thomas was looking for. And so Thomas's request isn't like this extraordinary, I know if anyone ever asked that today, we'd be like, whoa, you're asking for a lot. But for Thomas to ask that then, it wasn't so out of this world. It was the normative experience for hundreds of people post-resurrection and pre-ascension because Jesus was still revealing himself to people. And so Thomas wasn't being so out of this world in his request. He's just like, hey, I want to experience what you experience. It sounds kind of fair. So it's not that the other disciples, that their faith was stronger than Thomas's. It's just that the other disciples saw Jesus before Thomas did. They all wavered to believe, including the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. That's what doubt is. It's wavering to believe. They all wavered. We're going to waver. Maybe you're wavering right now. And you're in the right place. This is the right place to be. Thomas continued to meet with the disciples during those eight days. Continued to hear their stories. He did not reject the faith. If he did, he would not continue to meet with them. He was hesitating, however. And that's when he had that experience of meeting with Jesus eight days later. But again, doubt does not mean you do not have faith. It means that for some reason your life is hard and you're struggling and you're fearful and one plus one isn't equaling two and you're trying to figure that out. But you can be a believer and doubt at the same time. So moving on, that's what doubt is. So what do we do with our doubt? If you are doubting, if you've, if you've ever doubted, what do you do? The first thing you need to do is this. Tell the truth about your doubt. Again, Barna Research, they said that 
the majority believer, I think like 65%, this is back in 2017, of those who identify as Christians say that at some point in their lives, they doubted their faith, doubted what the Bible taught. And it said that millennials and younger generations, they were twice as likely to doubt. And I don't know why that is. There's no explanation. Maybe it's because there's more distrust in organized religions or more distrust in in institutions. Maybe because those generations that grew up more with the internet and social media are more isolated and that everything on social media, it's all about putting your best filtered foot forward and that nobody wants to stand out. Nobody wants to be behind. The past few years, I felt the most pressure in my own life to always be caught up. I feel pressure to always be caught up with the news, the politics, culture, movies and TV shows and sports. You always have to be caught up. People are always asking, did you hear about, did you see, did you watch? And if you didn't, then you almost kind of get a look like, what's wrong with you? You're weird. You didn't hear about this. You're like, oh, when did that happen? It just got tweeted out two minutes ago. How did you not hear about it? There's this pressure to always be caught up. And nobody wants to stand out. Nobody wants to feel like they're behind. Whether it's fashion or news, movies, TV. And that's why I love Thomas. And I think that's why this generation especially needs this story of Thomas is because Thomas is honest and he is okay being behind. Thomas is okay being the late guy. In fact, he is okay being the last guy, the slow guy. He is okay being the outlier. In this culture where we are so rushed to keep up with everybody else, to always fit in, Thomas is okay not fitting in. He doesn't succumb to that pressure, and I think that's a great example. His doubt is not a good example, but how he deals with his doubt, I believe, is. Namely, his honesty, because dishonesty about doubt only makes things worse. Because doubt grows in isolation. I really don't think you're going to be able to figure it out by yourself. The number one response to those who are doubting based on that Barna research is to stop attending church. So when people started to doubt, they just stopped attending church, they stopped reading the Bible, they stopped praying, they stopped talking to other Christians. And again, it's really interesting. Millennials and younger generations are twice as likely to stop doing those things as well. That when they're doubting, it's like, I'm just not going to go to church. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's everything I just shared. Maybe it's the way that they're conditioned to deal with uncomfortable situations just ghost the situation, just ignore the situation, and maybe it'll go away, but it's not going to go away, but that's just how they deal with it, and that's how they learn to respond. But that's not going to help. We need to tell the truth about our doubts, and I think it's a beautiful example. We don't know exactly what the other disciples said, but Thomas was definitely comfortable enough to continue meeting with them. I would only imagine 
that they're rooting for Thomas, that they're all sharing their personal experiences across those eight days. And maybe all of that was preparing Thomas for his encounter for Jesus and for Thomas to profess in that moment, my Lord, my God. Maybe he needed the other disciples and those eight days himself for his heart to be softened and his mind to open up. Maybe Jesus is risen. Maybe he was just right there and he needed to get right there until the moment he saw Jesus and finally believed. Tell the truth about your doubts. The next thing we need to do is tell your doubts about the truth. Tim Keller says this. This is lengthier, but it's really good, so I'm going to read this. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she had failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you even after you come to a position of strong faith to respect and understand those who doubt. In other words, don't leave your doubts alone. Confront them, acknowledge them, wrestle with them, wrestle with them with other people. It's gonna sharpen them as well. As a church, let me just say this, we should not fear people's doubts. Don't fear that their doubts are going to become your doubts and somehow derail your faith. As a community, we want to wrestle with them together. And what Keller is saying here without saying it is that faith is not blind. He's not saying believe just because, just blindly believe. And if that is your approach, your doubts, you're going to just sink deeper into that doubt. He's saying acknowledge them, wrestle with them, deal with them. A lot of people interpret what Jesus says at the end of John chapter 20 as blind faith. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. And so some people say, there you have it. Just believe. It's blind faith. We'll never see Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking specifically in that context. Blessed are those who have not seen him the risen Jesus in his bodily form and believe. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to see at all. In fact, I think there are many things for us to see. Unlike the disciples in the Gospels, they did not have the full completed canon of Scripture. They don't have the full New Testament. We do. And the work of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures points us to the reality of the resurrection and the gospel. But faith is not blind. And I also want to add this. As Christians, we do believe in the supernatural. We believe in the miraculous. 
But just because we believe in the supernatural miraculous doesn't mean we cease to be rational and logical. In other words, we are all Christians here, but whenever there's something that's inexplicable, I don't think any of us here, or most of us, we don't just jump to supernatural conclusions. I think a lot of us, we say, yes, science is real, history is real, and we give an honest look at the plausibility of a situation or why it's inexplicable. So we need to tell our doubts the truth. What are some of those truths? And I think we like to do this at least once a year at CCSC. I think it's very helpful. Moving into this Passion Week, next Sunday being Easter, Thomas struggling to believe in the resurrection. What reasons do we have to believe in the resurrection? And I'm not talking about just blind faith, just believe in it. I think it's always great to review the historical reasons why we do. And so let's speak some truth to our doubts. Let's look at history and what do the scholars agree on. These are non-Christian and Christian historians and scholars who agree at least these facts. That Jesus existed. They all agree, okay, this was a real person. There's no dispute. And that he was crucified by the Romans. Bart Ehrman, who's an atheistic New Testament scholar, he says that the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the most certain facts of history, that he was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The second thing that they all agree on is that the tomb was empty. They agree that the disciples believed they had seen the risen Jesus, they agree that James, the brother of Jesus, believed. In John chapter 7, we read that actually none of Jesus' siblings believed who he was growing up with him. And if there are two people who had the hardest time believing that Jesus was truly risen and the Son of God, it would be James or one of his siblings and also the Apostle Paul. And these historians, not Christian and Christian, agree that Paul, the former Jew, believed that he saw the risen Jesus. One Christian author equates it, equates Paul becoming a Christian to Osama bin Laden becoming an American patriot. And how do you explain that transformation? And then, of course, thousands of lives were changed and followers of Christ, they spread the good news of the risen Jesus, suffered for it, and even died for it. None of these facts here, these historical facts, necessitate a miracle or anything supernatural, which is why the non-Christian, atheistic historians and scholars will agree on these facts. And so you have to think about what is the most plausible explanation. And these are some of the most common explanations, naturalistic explanations, for why Paul was changed, James was changed, and Thousands of believers would give their life to sharing the gospel and preaching the word. These are some of the naturalistic explanations, some of the best explanations out there. Jesus didn't die. He didn't actually die. He was crucified because they all agree he was crucified. He was nailed to a cross. He was taken down from the cross, put into a tomb, but he was actually just hanging on to life. They thought he was dead. And then after three days, he managed to get up and leave the tomb, which is why the disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus because 
he wasn't risen. He was just kind of like resuscitated. And that's why they started to preach the gospel and they were willing to die for it. But you see that they agree. They all have to work around. What did the disciples see? They must have saw something for them to all change so dramatically. There's also the twin hypothesis. How do you explain why the disciples changed their lives? How do you explain when they say they saw the risen Jesus? They say, well, Jesus had a twin. And who they saw was actually Jesus' twin. And now maybe you're thinking that that seems pretty ridiculous, but this is an actual scholarly proposal. And Bart Ehrman, again, the agnostic atheist New Testament scholar, he says that he doesn't buy this twin hypothesis for a second, but he says it's more likely than Jesus rising from the dead because that requires the miraculous or the supernatural. He says it's not good, but it's better than actually believing in the resurrection. Thirdly, the disciples stole the body. That's why the tomb was empty. But then you got to think about, why would they lie about the resurrection? Why do we all lie? Why do people lie? People lie to avoid punishment. People lie. We all lie, even the smallest of lies, to make our lives a little easier. To make it a little more comfortable. That's why we lie. Why would the disciples lie to make their lives so much harder? To the point of death and persecution. And so... It's difficult to believe that the disciples stole the body to stage the resurrection and perpetuate this lie to their own demise. Lastly, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. That must be the reason why they believed that Jesus was risen. They went to the wrong tomb, and that tomb was empty. Then, of course, the Romans and the Jews could simply go to the right tomb, exhume the body, put it on display, and prove that Jesus was not actually risen. But these are some of the foremost non-supernatural explanations as to why Christianity exists. Why the disciples' lives were changed. And so it is up to you to discern and decide what's most plausible. And I do want to say this. We as Christians, we don't believe in the empty tomb if we believe in the empty tomb, we believe as much as atheistic, agnostic, non-Christian scholars and historians. What we believe is that Jesus was risen from the dead. We believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. An empty tomb doesn't reconcile sinners with a holy God. An empty tomb doesn't forgive anyone. An empty tomb does not promise everlasting life in heaven. An empty tomb doesn't promise peace and hope in the face of grief and loss and death and suffering. An empty tomb doesn't give us a greater purpose and meaning in life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then our faith is pointless. Everything that we're doing this morning is pointless. And that Christians should actually be pitied for believing the resurrection if it is not true. But we do believe it is true. 
History, I believe, points to that fact. The word of God points to that. Changed lives, your changed life, the changed lives of other people here this morning, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in us that tells us that we are children of God points to the reality that Jesus indeed is risen. And we need to tell our doubts those truths. A really important way that we tell our doubts the truth is in community, practically to keep going to church. I mentioned before that when people start to doubt, many drop off from going to church. They try to figure it out themselves or they're too afraid to face their doubts. So my encouragement is to not take a break from church. Trying to figure out your doubt, doubt apart from church is like saying, I'm really hungry, but I'm not gonna eat food. I'm just gonna wait for my hunger to go away. Doubt grows in isolation. We need the body. We need the word. We need the means of grace. John says this at the end of John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying Jesus did so many other things, and when I read that, I'm like, I want to know what they are pretty cool. Like, we're kind of missing out on all these other miracles and teachings of Jesus. But John, what he's saying is, yeah, he did all these other things, but you don't need to know them all to believe. And that's the thing about doubt is it always wants one more thing. I just need one more piece of evidence. I just need one more proof. But there's a point where you got to say, more actually probably won't help And John is saying, we actually have everything that we need. We need to trust that. Brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit, which illuminates the word of God to us and convinces us. And we need to pray maybe more earnestly that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes, change our hearts, and help us see the light of the gospel and to believe and to trust in the face of doubts. G.I. Packer speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says this, It's the Spirit's work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text, opening and unveiling our minds and attunes our hearts so that we understand. And we need the church, the Word, the Spirit, and the church. What do we need the church to do? Jude, the brother of, another brother of Jesus, he says this, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. It's interesting. Jude doesn't say have more proofs for those who doubt. Point to scripture to those who doubt. Or just pray for those who doubt. Or give them a book to read. Or point them to a website, those who doubt. Isn't it interesting that Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt? Again, doubt, it's not just an intellectual deficiency. It's emotional. It's personal. One author wrote that it's, we need to remember 
And we have to keep in mind that those doubting their faith or deconstructing their faith, they are often in significant pain. A lot of people doubt because they're in a place of pain. They're experiencing some kind of hardship in their life. God doesn't feel real to them because of that. How can God be loving? How can Jesus be risen? How can God be sovereign? They're often coming from a place of suffering and pain, which is why Jude says, what do they need? Mercy. They need mercy. They need brothers and sisters who will be compassionate and walk that slow road with them in that journey and pray for them and care for them. I believe that's what they need. They need through the church and through you to know God is loving. God sees me. God is aware. Jesus is alive and I experience it through the love of the body of Christ. The lack of mercy and the lack of love in the church and among Christians is actually why Francis Schaeffer had a crisis of faith and he was doubting. He tells his wife, Edith, I feel really torn to pieces by the lack of reality. I won't read the whole thing. He feels torn to pieces because of the lack of reality. What is that lack of reality? Elsewhere, he explains what that means. It's the lack of love among believers. The lack of hospitality and care and concern and warmth and welcoming that he would expect based on scripture and what the gospel teaches, how Jesus Christ condescended, took on human flesh, minister to and love those who are suffering and those who are outcasts, bore the weight of sin on the cross and the wrath of God so that sinners might be welcomed and loved by God and reconciled with him and be saved. And he entered this crisis of faith where he felt like he needed to hit the reset button. He said he went back to agnosticism, all the way back to agnosticism. Praise God, he eventually worked his way back but that caused a lapse in his faith. And I, I believe that there might be some people here this morning who are struggling with their faith, maybe for the same reason. So we need mercy because doubt isn't always a lapse in facts. It could be a lapse in health, a loved one and suffering. Let me close with this. Jesus loves those who are doubting. If you are doubting, if you're questioning your faith, if you're having a hard time believing, Jesus loves you. Jesus knew about Thomas. He waited for eight days. I don't know why, but he waited. And maybe Jesus is, is waiting with you as well. Not apart from you, but with you. And I don't know why 
but I do want to say Jesus loves you. We see Jesus, again, reveal himself to all of the disciples, but he singles out Thomas. And he doesn't single him out to call him out or to embarrass him. No, he singles him out in the way that our good shepherd leaves the 99 for the one. And he ministers to Thomas personally and exclusively in front of all of the disciples in a way that is special to Thomas. And that is the way that Jesus loves all of us, even those who are doubting. Charles Spurgeon, he once said this, the weakest lamb is as dear to him as the strongest in the flock. If that's you, if you're feeling like one of the weakest, Jesus loves you just as much as he loves the strongest. And I think just knowing that encourages you and comforts you that you are not alone in your doubt, encourages you to seek the one who is seeking you and wants to meet you and wants to see you flourish and be confident in your faith. Let's pray. Can we take a moment and just pray a very simple prayer? Just like the Father in Mark 9, can we pray Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe, but it's been really hard to trust and believe because of what I'm going through in my life, because of these hardships and this suffering. It's hard for me to connect those dots. Let's pray.